Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The 76th edition of the NBA Finals are upon us. This season's climactic championship round features the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat battling battling it out for all the marbles in pro basketball. The Nuggets, the number one seed in this year's Western Conference playoffs, are in the finals for the very first time in its NBA history. Now, people forget that the Nuggets had been a perennial power in another league during the 1970s. The Nuggets end their years in the American Basketball Association behind David Thompson and Bobby Jones lost in six games to Julius Irving, Dr. J, and the New York Nets in the last ABA Finals in May of 1976. The Nuggets throughout their history in the NBA has been known as a freewheeling, high-scoring, up-tempo outfit that undoubtedly took full advantage of its high altitude. And they featured some of the greatest scorers in league history from the aforementioned David Thompson to Alex English to Carmelo Anthony to the stars to current stars of Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. Their opponents for the Larry O'Brien Trophy this year is the Miami Heat, who are in the finals for the seventh time in the history of the team. And simultaneously, they avoided being on the wrong side of history after going ahead three games to none in the Eastern Conference Finals and was able to defeat the Boston Celtics in Game 7 in Boston. The Heat, with its quote-unquote Heat culture of defense and selfless play, is celebrating its 35th season in the NBA and have been one of the most consistent winners over the last 30 years. Yet it is hard to imagine that the Heat had one of the most difficult beginnings to an expansion franchise ever in pro sports. Hello once again everyone, I'm Dana Augusta and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm glad, grateful, and thankful for you taking time out of your busy day or evening or night to give us a listen and just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. In this edition of the podcast, we will take a look at the two teams that will square off in the NBA Finals the Denver Nuggets, and the Miami Heat. 
but we're going to be taking it from a historical perspective, highlighting how each team holds a significant place in NBA history. Now, later on in the show, I have put together each team's all-time team, featuring stars from both franchises, and I've put together who would be placed in the starting lineup and who would be coming off the bench and who is the team's coach and all of that. And to round out the show, we will travel back 45 years to the 1978 NBA Championship Series between the Washington Bullets and the Seattle Supersonics. Now, why are these finals being talked about, you may ask? Well, not only is this the 45th anniversary of the Bullets slash Wizards only NBA title, but this year the Miami Heat, as an eighth seed, reaches the finals with a mark of 44 and 38. That matches the record by the 1978 Bullets, who defeated the Sonics in a highly competitive seven-game series. Actually, it was the first NBA Finals since 1958, and the only one since where neither team that reached the NBA Championship round won 50 games that season in an 82-game regular season. Altogether, the 1978 series, in a word, was weird. It had a strange 1-2-2-1-1 format. Most of the games were on tape delay. And one of the games of the finals had to be moved to another venue because of a mobile home show. Oh, the NBA in the late 1970s. And on that note, sit back, pump up the volume, because you're going down sports memory lane with the top down in this NBA Finals special edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. Hello, welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And this, of course, is our yearly NBA Finals edition. And if you are new here, what we do is we take a quick look at the teams in the NBA Finals. Yeah, we do it through the lens of sports history. And this season, battling it out for the Larry O'Brien Trophy is the Denver Nuggets, reaching the NBA Finals for the first time ever. They're going to be taking on the Miami Heat, looking for its fourth NBA title in its seventh appearance in the championship round. Now, looking at this matchup, I'm struck by the two teams' contrast with one another and how they're viewed through the lens of history, through fan perception and what's not. And on one hand, there's the Denver Nuggets. And I am old enough to remember that when you mention the Nuggets, you think of scoring, scoring, and more scoring. One game that comes to mind in particular happened on December 13, 1983, when the Nuggets hosted the Detroit Pistons at Old McNichols Arena. Now, the two teams combined that night for 370 points as the Nuggets prevailed in a 186-184 triple overtime thriller, and no, this was not an all-star game. 
four players that night actually finished with 40 points or more, including Kiki Vandeweghe, who had a game high of 51 points. And of course, this game was in Denver. The Nuggets have always taken full advantage of its unique home court advantage, being 5,280 feet above sea level and its thin air. The Nuggets became part of the NBA in 1976, being one of the four teams that survived the ABA-NBA merger. With the Nuggets at long last reaching the finals this year, they are the last of the former ABA teams to reach the NBA's promised land. The Spurs, who are called the Invisible Dynasty, have already won five NBA titles, while the other ABA refugees, the Pacers and the Nets, have only three NBA Finals appearances between them and neither one have ever won an NBA title. The Nuggets in the early years surprised the experts by finding success almost immediately out the gate. They were led by future Hall of Fame coaches Larry Brown and later Doug Moe, whose 432 wins with the Nuggets are the most in franchise history. Leading the charge on the court were players like the electrifying David Thompson, the Skywalker, and Dan Issel, a.k.a. the Horse. They contributed to the team's early success in the NBA. How successful? Well, in their first 14 seasons in the NBA, Denver reached the postseason 12 times. All the while, with their exciting brand of basketball, attracted fans to McNichols Arena who routinely filled it and made it very loud and a very difficult place to play for opposing teams. And they also, the altitude didn't help matters. By 1979, the, off, the Nuggets offense gained an immediate shot in the arm, as if they really needed it. Denver acquired a sharpshooting small forward in a trade from the Indiana Pacers in the middle of the season named Alex English. English became the embodiment of Nuggets basketball throughout the decade of the 80s. Quiet and efficient, this pure shooter and scorer would become the team's all-time leading scorer. And if there was such a thing as a quiet scorer, it was English. You could be watching a game and the announcer would say, maybe sometime in the third quarter, that English has 31 points. And you would be like, wow, when did he do that? He was quiet and smooth and consistent like the streams flowing from the Rockies. By 1985, the Nuggets were a perennial Western Conference power. From 1979 through 1985, Denver appeared in three Western Conference Finals, yet they were denied the NBA Finals by the powerful Lakers each time. During that period, the Nuggets showcased several outstanding scorers to go alongside English, such as T.R. Dunn and Dan Issel, Fat Lever, Calvin Natt, and Kiki Vandeweghe. As the calendar turned from the 80s to the 90s, the Nuggets that were once an NBA power began to give way, and the team began to struggle on the court. By 93, the Nuggets looked inward and hired Issel to become their head coach. This simple decision turned the tide of the franchise, and by 1994, Denver was poised to make history. The Nuggets made the postseason as an eighth seed and, according to experts, would be eliminated quite easily and quickly by the powerful Seattle Supersonics led by Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, and Detlef Shrimp. Denver came into the playoffs with a 42-40 record, which was their best regular season mark in five years. Leading the way on the court was Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf at point guard. Some remember him as Chris Jackson from LSU. 
a young, they had also had a young, versatile forward and emotional leader, Lafonso Ellis, and a defensive whiz and clutch shooter, Reggie Williams. But the centerpiece of the team and Denver fan favorite was a defensive dominating center from the Congo named Dikembe Mutombo, whose fa who fans nicknamed him Mount Mutombo. The first two games of the series in Seattle, the Sonics won easily. Yet Denver won Game 3 in a blowout and outlasted the Sonics in Game 4, 94-85 in overtime, setting up the decisive Game 5 back at the Seattle Center Coliseum. Back then, the first round of the postseason was the best 3 out of 5 instead of the usual 4 out of 7. In Game 5, that came down to overtime once again. The Nuggets would prevail 98-94, becoming the, eighth, the first 8th seed to be the one seed in the NBA playoffs. Now one of the most indelible images of that finals, of that series I should say, was Mutombo laying on his back as time ran out of the series and the Sonics holding up the basketball in triumph, pulling off one of the biggest upsets in NBA postseason history. The Nuggets were not through though. Their next opponents was their Rocky Mountain arch rivals, the Utah Jazz led by John Stockton and Karl Malone. The Jazz went up three games to none in the series very quickly, and it seemed to be all over for the Nuggets. However, Denver would rally, and I mean rally, in the series. The next thing you know, Denver, who had just finished the regular season just two games above 500, and who had become the first eighth seed to beat a one, was on the verge of making even more history, rallying from three games to one down in the series. Heck, at the time, they were only the second team to even force a Game 7 after being down 0-3. Yet, behind Malone and Stockton, it was not meant to be, as the Jazz won going away 91-81 in Salt Lake City. To this day, when people think of the Denver Nuggets, people often think fondly of this team and all they accomplished. After 1994, the team went into a long playoff drought until 2003 and the arrival of Syracuse star Carmelo Anthony, who had led the Orange to the national championship earlier that spring. His arrival had energized the franchise, and by 2009, the Nuggets had become an NBA power once again. They were led by head coach George Carl and the likes of Chauncey Billups and J.R. Smith, Chris Anderson, and Kenyon Martin. The Nuggets were poised to make the finals for the first time ever, yet standing in the way of the Nuggets and their promised land once again, the Lakers. The Lakers once again ended the dream of the Nuggets fans and denied them from finally reaching the finals that year once again. And once one more time in 2020 in the bubble. However, this year, the Nuggets overcame the Lakers and exercised its demons that wore purple and gold and swept the Lakers to reach the finals for the first time. It was a long time coming for the Nuggets and their fans to reach their promised land. And even though it still might be a little hard to catch your breath, you know, with the altitude. And along with the history of the team, I also put together Nuggets All-Time Team. To start things off, we have head coach Doug Moe. 432 wins. You can't beat that. The starting point guard, the starting five will go like this. Point guard Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. With his three-point shooting and passing, in my opinion, he was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. And shooting guard, that's David Thompson. The Skywalker, the absolutely incredible scorer, high leaper, had, a, had his famous 42-inch vertical, and people also remember him from that famous scoring title duel he had between 
himself and George Gervin from the Spurs in 1978. The front line, Alex English, at small forward, power forward, Lafonso Ellis, and at center, the current star of the Denver Nuggets, Nikola Jokic at center. Now the second team, point guard Lafayette Fat Lever. He was a point guard for the Nuggets in the 80s, a ball handling whiz, clutch jump shooter, and it's just an absolute marvelous ball handler just to watch. He was one of those really great players that was fun to watch in the 80s. And he was the trigger man for that high score Nuggets team back then. And shooting guard is Jamal Murray. One of the current stars. Another clutch shooter. Outstanding shooter. Who's basically the, 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 Rob, the, the Robin to Nikola Jokic Batman for this Nuggets team right now that's in the finals. Small forward, of course, Carmelo Anthony. Power forward, the horse, Dan Issel, and Mount Matumbo at center, Dikembe Matumbo with his, with his finger waving after every block shot. People remember that. Now, we have three bench players. First one is Byron Beck. Now, a lot of people don't necessarily remember Byron Beck because he played most of his career when the, when the Nuggets were in the ABA. He was the first ever Nuggets star. He was a center slash power forward. He was a lot like a Jokic, you know, back then, but he was a outstanding rebounder gets the dirty the dirty work underneath he was just an outstanding he was outstanding rebounder he had this really good hook shot that he would that he pull off in the lane not as good as say kareem or anything like that but it was very effective another power from the, the power forward bobby jones now rem, a lot of people remember bobby jones in the 80s when he played for the philadelphia 76ers alongside dr j and moses malone but he started his career with the Nuggets in the ABA, and he was another great rebounding power forward. He clutched shots. He was an outstanding shooter for a power forward at the time. Just another really, really solid player. And rounding out the bench, Reggie Williams. Now, Reggie Williams was a quiet scorer for the Nuggets in the 90s. He was also a defensive whiz. Normally, he would get the assignment of, guard, of guarding the opposition's best offensive weapon. And he was just, you know, and plus he's a Georgetown product, so he was very mentally tough. And he was just a hard, hardcore player for the Nuggets in the 90s and was a key member of that 94 team that made history. So that rounds out our look at the Denver Nuggets in this portion of the program. And coming up after the break, we're going to take a look at the Miami Heat. And this is a team that had a rough start to start things off in the history of their franchise and became an NBA power, it seemed like almost overnight. And for a time, they were also the NBA's most hated team. Does anybody remember why? That's coming up after the break. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. 
go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hey, welcome back, and thanks for sticking with us. I'm Dana Augusta, and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. Now, we had just taken a look at the Western Conference champion Denver Nuggets, and now we'll take a quick look at the Miami Heat through the lens of history. Now, unlike the Nuggets, who were in the NBA Finals for the first time, Miami is in the Finals for the seventh time in the 35-year history of the team, And basketball fans in general have a very complicated relationship with the Heat. Now, the Heat was an expansion team and joined the NBA in 1988. And since then, they have been looked at as a team that went from a notorious loser to a scrappy upstart to a heartwarming winner to brash and conceited to now a hardworking band of basketball unknowns. Who, with this group in the finals for the second time in four years and was within one win away from the finals just a year ago and now they're back continuing their winning tradition now winning for expansion teams have always been difficult yet for the miami heat in 1988 it was especially difficult the heat being mentioned with the phrase winning tradition would have been an impossible dream during their first few seasons their first season especially Led by coach Ron Rothstein, the Heat stumbled out of the gate going 0-17 to start the 88-89 season. Their first win finally came way on December 14th of 88, beating the lowly LA Clippers 89-88 at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. The Heat finished their inaugural season with the dubious record of 15-67. Miami's first team was filled with a lot of young players, including first-ever draft choice Syracuse All-American Ronnie Sykley. Also on the team was other veterans such as Rory Sparrow and John Sunfold, former Syracuse star Pearl Washington, and Grant Long, a.k.a. my favorite nickname of all time, the Human Vitamin. After a few years of getting over the expansion blues, the Heat was moving up in the standings in the Eastern Conference, and by 1992, Miami was ready for the postseason. That season, Miami, led by head coach Kevin Lockery, finished with a 38-44 mark, which was good enough for the Eastern Conference playoffs as an eight seed. And the Heat making the playoffs for the very first time. That year, they would face off against the defending NBA champion Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. The Bulls would eliminate the Heat in three blowout games, but for Miami for the first time got a taste of the NBA postseason and it surely would not be the last. 
Miami would remain a contender in the Eastern Conference throughout the 90s, adding pieces along the way, including point guard Tim Hardaway from Golden State and Alonzo Mourning, who was acquired from, the expans from their expansion brethren, the Charlotte Hornets. By 97, Miami was in the Eastern Conference Finals for the first time, and once again, standing in their way was Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Under second-year head coach Pat Riley, who came over from the Knicks, the Heat would lose to the Bulls once again, but a precedent was set. And that was the Heat would reach the Eastern Conference postseason for the next six consecutive seasons, led by Morning Hardaway and young Glenn Rice out of Michigan. By 03, the Heat was coming off back-to-back -back losing seasons, and all that was about to change in the draft. There are certain times that one draft pick could change the entire fortunes of a franchise, and for the Heat, it was in 2003. So with the fifth pick that year, the Heat drafted a guard from Marquette, from Marquette named Dwayne Wade. Joining Wade was an undrafted rookie named Udonis Haslam from Florida. They would become the backbone of future NBA championship teams. By 06, Miami, who was just 18 years earlier, was the laughing stock of the NBA and was being compared to the 1976 Tampa Bay Buccaneers, reached the NBA Finals for the first time ever. Joining that team were a couple of stars looking for one last championship opportunity. One, Shaquille O'Neal who would be the anchor on offense in the low post, and the other addition was Gary Payton, who was looking for that elusive title that would cap his long and storied career. Facing them in the finals that year were the Dallas Mavericks, who were in the finals for the first time themselves. And coming off of a tumultuous regular season that saw Riley replace Stan Van Gundy as head coach, the Heat rallied from down two games to none in the finals and won four straight games to win their first ever NBA title. Wade was named the Finals MVP, and the Miami Heat was the toast of the NBA. The Heat was still a consistent winner in the league, even after Riley stepped down as coach and returned to the front office. He would be replaced by a young assistant named Eric Spolstra, who began his tenure with the Heat as a video editor breaking down game film. After a pair of first-round losses in the, in the playoffs, the Heat's fortunes and, for the most part, public perception practically changed overnight. On July 8, 2010, on a live special on ESPN, Cleveland Cavaliers star LeBron James announced that he would be, quote-unquote, taking his talents to South Beach for the upcoming season. Joining Wade and LeBron would be Chris Bosh, who was an all-star with the Raptors, and overnight, the Heat became not only the NBA's hottest ticket, but in all other NBA cities, they became enemy number one. This hatred and animosity was further enhanced when the team was formally announced to the Miami fans, fans and James declared that they would win as many as seven NBA championships. In their first season together, Miami would go 58-24, and face off against the Mavericks again in the finals. Yet unlike 2006, the Heat would be upset by the Mavericks in six games, losing the final three games of the series. The next year, the Heat would return to the finals, but this time, the Heat behind the trio James, Wade, and Bosh defeated a young Oklahoma City Thunder team in five games for their second NBA championship in franchise history. By 2013, the Heat, who had won a franchise 66 games, was poised to become back-to-back -back champions, 
and they will return to the finals behind the big three, James, Wade, and Bosch. But standing in the way were the San Antonio Spurs with their big three, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, and Manu Ginobili. In a riveting seven-game series, both teams went back and forth, yet the most memorable image of that series happened in Game 6, when Ray Allen sent the game into overtime for the Heat with a three-part of the tie the game at 95. The Heat would win, win the game in overtime and eventually win the series two nights later for their second consecutive world championship and their third in franchise history. The Spurs and Heat would meet up one more time in the finals. But this time, in 2014, the Spurs would get the better of the Heat, claiming their fifth NBA title, beating the Heat in five games, and simultaneously ending the Heat's championship dynasty as LeBron James would return to Cleveland that offseason. Now, since then, the Heat had continued to be one of the NBA's most polarizing teams, yet playoff content yet and also playoff contenders throughout. One consistent of this team has been Spolster's coaching and the culture and that he and Riley created. The Heat behind recently acquired Jimmy Butler led the Heat back to the finals in 2020 in the bubble, losing ironically to LeBron James and the Lakers. The Heat with Butler and Spolster has returned to the finals once again this year. Heat culture for what it's worth and however you may feel about it is real. So despite its rough and humble beginnings, Miami has become one of the great franchises in NBA history, not, with, with, not without some controversy. Now, their all-time team is pretty straightforward and is really pretty easy to pick from because they've had a, a, a large array of talent throughout the history of their franchise. Head coach to me would be, of course, Eric Spolstra, who created the culture behind Pat Riley. But Eric Spolstra, when you think of a Miami Heat head coach, I think you really have to consider Spolstra as their all-time as their all-time coach. Now, the starting five goes like this: point guard Tim Hardaway, leader of that team during the 1990s. He's by far the best point guard, pure point guard the team has ever had. Shooting guard, of course, Dwayne Wade. Small forward, LeBron James, obviously. Chris Bosh, obviously a power forward. And at center, obviously, Alonzo Warning. Can't get more straightforward than that. And, and just think for a second. If this team, if this starting five ever played together, can you imagine how dominant they would really be? I mean, that's scary. Second team. Second team power forward, Mario Chalmers. Now, a lot of people kind of dismiss Mario Chalmers, but he was a very important piece of that, of those back-to-back, those four consecutive Eastern Conference Championship teams with James, Wade, and Bosch, and people kind of discount how important he was throughout that entire run for the Miami Heat. Shooting guard Jimmy Butler, who is the embodiment of what is considered Heat culture now, and he's basically the leader of this team that is in the finals right, right now going up against the Denver Nuggets. Small forward, he was a consistent scorer in the 1990s, and we're talking about Glenn Rice. You know, he's kind of another one that's been kind of under the radar as far as, like, how great of a player he was during the 1990s. Power forward, Udonis Haslam, who I call Mr. Miami Heat. He played his entire almost 20-year career with the Miami Heat, and he is basically the embodiment of that franchise. And at center, backup center, Shaquille O'Neal. Now, 
I don't know how personal he would take this being back, being second fiddle to Alonzo Mourning. But if anybody that could kind of talk him into that role, it probably would be Pat Riley. If anybody that's capable of doing that. And on the bench, you have Ronnie Sykley. People forget, this is a really, really good player coming out of Syracuse. The unfortunate part about it was that he really didn't have too much going with him in those early Miami Heat days. But if he would have had, he was a really, really great shooter for a center. He was a tough rebounder, but he was just an outstanding offensive weapon at the low post. And he was one of those first time you really saw like a foreign style, European style center in the league. He, you know, and he was just a, just an outstanding shooter. Very fundamentally sound, and he won a lot of games for Jim Beheim at Syracuse. And he just, I think that he gets a bum rap throughout his whole entire NBA career, mostly because of the team that he played for. That was the problem. Another one from those early years, rounding out the bench, Grant Long, the human vitamin. He was instant energy coming off the bench for this team. He was a great, outstanding rebounder, outstanding defender, very emotional, but he was also very, very, very tough inside. And another guy that was part of this Miami Heat team and part of some really good teams, and I think that people kind of forgot about him rounding out this bench, was Eddie Jones, who was a coming out of Temple. He was a very, very great player, great defender, clutch shooter, outstanding player but a lot of people kind of you know he played a lot of a lot of his years with the lakers he came to south beach and he played outstanding for the miami heat during his time there but people kind of forget how good of a player he how great of a player he was and he was just such a tremendous tremendous you know swing man could play some guard could play some forward you know he had great size great shooting ability so that is my off my all-time team for the miami heat and coming up next, right after this short break, that and the Miami Heat have a lot in common with a team of a past, with a team that won a championship in the past. 45 years ago was the 1978 NBA Finals. And we're going to be talking about that series in a moment. And you're probably going to be wondering, okay, what is so special about the 45, about the 78 Finals? Well, let's just say the Miami Heat and one of the teams that's playing in the finals, they have a lot in common with. So we're going to be talking about that after this short break. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row 1 Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row 1 Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one 
for access to the full Row 1 catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello, welcome back to the program. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and we're celebrating the NBA Finals between the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat on this special edition, this NBA Finals edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And we will close out the show as I normally do with a shout-out. And we're going to send a shout-out to a past NBA Finals. Now, this year, the Miami Heat became just the second team ever to reach the Finals as an A-seed, joining the 1999 New York Knicks. Yet, this team was the only one to do it after playing an entire 82-game season. The 99 season, if you remember, was cut short because of a lockout and they only played 50 regular seasons that year. So the Heat battled through these playoffs, beating the top seed Milwaukee Bucks, then powered past their rivals from the New York from the 90s, the New York Knicks, and held on to beat the Boston Celtics, nearly squandering a 3-0 lead to make it to the finals. Now the Heat finished this year's regular season with a mark of 44 and 38. And if Miami, and if Miami wins the series, they would equal the 1978 Washington Bullets with the worst record ever to win an NBA title. While looking into this forgotten NBA championship series, I discovered that their opponents in the finals that year, the Seattle Supersonics, had finished the regular season with an equally unimpressive mark of 47-35, and 35, making it the first and only NBA Finals since 1958 to have two teams in the Finals with less than 50 wins in the regular season. It hadn't happened before then, and it hadn't happened since. Now, the Bullets were led by Hall of Famers Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes and had been one of the winningest teams throughout the decade of the 70s, reaching the Finals two previous times in the decade, yet losing in sweeps. In 1971, the Bullets were swept by Lou Alcindor, Oscar Robertson, and the Milwaukee Bucks. Then, in one of, if not the biggest finals upset ever, the 1975 Bullets, who won 60 games that year, were swept, not beaten, but swept by the Golden State Warriors, who only won 47 games that year. The Bullets were led by second-year head coach Dick Mata and they struggled through the season with a myriad of injuries to key players. Yet by the time of the playoff, the Bullets had found their stride. In the first round, they dispatched the Atlanta Hawks and then ousted the San Antonio Spurs in six games. After the series, after the Bullets take a 3-1 series lead, Mata, in an interview, looked to remind his team and fans to maintain focus and the series isn't over. He said, quote, the opera isn't over till the fat lady sings. Unquote. That became the Bullets mantra throughout the remainder of the playoffs in 78. After beating the Spurs, and yes, the Spurs were once in the Eastern Conference, they matched up against the defending Eastern Conference champions, the Philadelphia 76ers led by Julius Irving. Behind Hayes, Unseld, and Bob Dandridge, 
the Bullets upset the Sixers in six games to advance to their third finals of the 1970s. Yet waiting for them were the Seattle Supersonics, who had more than their share of struggles through the season. The Sonics had a disappointing start of the season, going 5-17 on the head coach Bob Hopkins. Hopkins would later be fired and replaced by Lenny Wilkins, a former player and fan favorite in Seattle. From there, the Sonics took off and reached the playoffs as a fourth seed. On the court, the Sonics were led by center Jack Sigma, forwards Freddie Brown and John Johnson, and high-scoring backcourt of Dennis Johnson and Gus Williams. In the playoff, the Sonics defeated the Lakers in four games, then knocked off the defending NBA champion Portland Trail Blazers in six, after the Blazers lost Bill Walton in game two. In the Western Conference Finals, the Sonics defeated the Denver Nuggets, where have we heard that team before? In six games to reach the finals for the very first time. In this very unlikely NBA Finals, both teams had less than 50 wins, and it became evident that this was going to be a hard-fought series. This was not only a hard-fought series, it was also weird. Well, for one thing, this was, the, this was 1978. The NBA Finals games that were on television were on tape delay, meaning that games had that took place on weeknights were not seen live and the games were broadcast after the late local news. Fans had to stay up till 11 o'clock at night to watch a game in the finals. Another aspect of the finals was the format. Instead of the current 2-2-1-1-1 format or the traditional 2-3-2 format, the 1978 finals went this way. The first game of the series opened in Seattle at the Seattle Center Coliseum. Games 2 and 3 would be played at the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland. Games 4 and 5 would be back in Seattle, Game 6 in Maryland, and then Game 7 back in Seattle, giving you the unusual 1-2-2-1-1 format. The series opened on Sunday afternoon, May 21st, at the Seattle Center Coliseum. The Bullets would lead for most of that game with their largest lead being 19. However, in the fourth, the Sonics would turn the tables on Washington thanks to the shooting of downtown Freddie Brown. Brown would score 16 of his game-high 32 and rally Seattle past Washington 106-102 to take game one. Now, the, shift, the series shifted to the Capitol Center in Landover from game two. The story of the game was Bob Dandridge. Who was, who, who was brought to the Bullets an additional NBA experience as a member of the 1971 Bucks that defeated the Bullets in four games. Now this time as a member of the Bullets, his 34 points in game two led the Bullets to their first ever win in NBA Finals competition 106-98. Because remember, the Bullets were swept in their previous two NBA Finals appearances. Elvin Hayes was also a factor scoring 25 points in the win. Now, with a series tied at one and one apiece, both teams looked to gain the upper hand in Game 3, which came down to the final seconds. With 10 seconds remaining in regulation, the Sonics held a slim one, one, uh, three-point lead, and the Sonics inbounded the ball to Bullets guard Tom Henderson, who stole it from Dennis Johnson and scored to bring the Bullets to within one point. Now, when the Sonics attended to inbound the ball again, Paul Silas stepped on the baseline and turned the ball back over to the Bullets. After a Washington timeout, the Bullets inbounded the ball, and with time running out, Dandridge had a wide-open shot at the buzzer that rimmed out. 
and the Sonics held on to a 93-92 win to lead the series two games to one. Now with the Sonics holding a 2-1 series lead, the scene shifted back to Seattle for game four. Due to a mobile home show, game four would be moved out of the Seattle Center Coliseum to the Kingdom, home field of the Seahawks and the Mariners. A then NBA Finals record 39,000 fans came on to cheer on the Sonics. Seattle led for most of the game, yet in the fourth quarter, Bullets would storm back behind Dandridge, Hayes, and reserve Mitch Kupchak. Both teams would go back and forth down the stretch of the game. Dandridge would once again have the ball in his hands for the shot, final shot at the end of regulation, yet his shot would be blocked by Dennis Johnson, and the game would go into overtime. In the extra period, the Bullets' Charles Johnson, a reserve guard, hit three quick shots to give the Bullets the lead and ultimately the game 120-116. The series was now tied two games apiece. In Game 5, with the Finals returning to the Seattle Center Coliseum, the Sonics will regain control of the series thanks to Fred Brown's 26 points. As the Sonics staved off another Bullets rally in the fourth quarter to win 98-94. Kevin Greavy led the Bullets with 22 points as they erased an 11-point Sonics lead in the fourth. With the win, Seattle was just one win away from their first NBA title. Yet Game 6 would be back at the Capitol Center in Landover. The Bullets would force a Game 7 as they blew out the Sonics 117-82. The convincing win was sparked by a coaching move by Dick Mata. Before the game, Mata inserted Greg Ballard at, at, in the starting lineup and moved Dandridge from to shooting guard to shore up the Bullets' starting backcourt. The 35-point win was the largest margin of victory in finals history until the 1998 finals when the Bulls destroyed the Sonics 96-54. As it turned out, the coaching move proved effective as the Bullets forced a winner-take-all Game 7 back in Seattle. In the seventh and final game taking place on June 7th, the Silence and Bullets squared off back in Seattle Center Coliseum. Dennis Johnson, who was becoming a household name in the series, struggled in this game going 0-14 for 14 from the field and the Bullets took full advantage. Washington led for most of the game yet with less than the two minutes remaining. The Bullets saw their 11-point second-half lead whittle down to four. An even bigger moment came when team captain and all-star Elvin Hayes fouled out later late in the game. Yet with less than a minute to play, Wes Unsell was fouled by Paul Silas with the Bullets leading by two. Now Unsell at that time was just a 55% free throw shooter, yet he hit both free throws to give the Bullets the lead. Moments later, Bob Dandridge would seal the game and the series on a dunk to give the Bullets their first ever NBA title, winning the game 105-99. In the locker room, Coach Mata celebrated with his team wearing a beer-soaked, the, quote, the opera isn't over till the fat lady sings t-shirt. He said in the post-game interview, quote, what made the championship so great was that we weren't supposed to win it. We came a long way. Most people didn't give us a chance, but I felt all along that we could. I really did, unquote. Bullet center Wes Unseld was named the series' most valuable player, and the Bullets' win in Game 7 would be the last road team to win a Game 7 in the NBA Finals until 2016, 
when the Cleveland Cavaliers won their first NBA title, defeating the Warriors in Oakland. The Bullets and Sonics would meet again in the finals the very next season, and unlike the year before, the Sonics would win the series and their only world championship in just five games. For the 1978 Washington Bullets, they remain the team with the worst record ever to win an NBA title. There will always be discussions on who was the best team. Was it the 96 Bulls, or the 83 Sixers, or the 72 Lakers, or the 86 Celtics? Yet it could be said that the Bullets may be the worst of the champions. Maybe, but they still got the ring. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show and tell everyone you know about us. Maybe even some people you don't know. And until next time, stay cool, stay blessed, and I will see you guys soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.